Well, I have lived, I've figured out, give or take a few days, about 17,600 days. That's starting to sound like a lot. Starting to feel like a lot. But you know, with all those days and all that those days contain, my life, just like your life, you've got some days that stand out, right? It doesn't matter, you've got a lot of days or a few days, you've got some stays, some days that kind of stand out to you. And, and for me, two of those days are December 19th, 1987 and June 8th, 2013. That first date was the day that, that Karen and I got married. That second date was, of course, just this past summer when our oldest daughter got married. And boy, folks, there's just something entirely satisfying about arriving at those days, isn't there? Whether it's that day for you or whether it's arriving there as a family, there, there's just a sense of accomplishment, a, a achievement. There, there's just something altogether fairy tale about it, isn't it? Ha- happily ever after. That is until, you know, he, he leaves his dirty socks and underwear everywhere. Or she, for the life of her, cannot figure out there is a right direction for the toilet paper to go on the toilet paper roll. There's a right direction for that, Okay. And then you add to that some of the, you know, the surprises that you learned in that first year, some of the differences between the two of you. It's so fun, you know, but then even with that stuff, you start adding some other things, maybe a money problem. Maybe there's a run-in with an in-law. Maybe there's some unmet expectations, a couple things we didn't expect. You know, and then all of a sudden, the fairy tale has been knocked right out of the marriage, you know, there's always been a challenge to, to make a marriage work from the inside. But I think our challenge today, folks, is that from the outside, we have more people, more things, more issues attacking marriage than maybe ever before. From sexual promiscuity to pornography to, to homosexuality to no-fault divorce to a government and a media that have absolutely no respect at all for marriage, the cement of society. And so you've got this, this couple that, again, got plenty of challenges within and of themselves to achieve this happily ever after, but then they're getting these attacks from without. There, there used to be a society that surrounded you, a culture that surrounded you, and they helped, they encouraged this marriage make it. Boy, that is almost entirely not true at all today. When that young man, that young woman head back down that aisle into happily ever after, there's almost nothing that's going to help them accomplish that. And that's sad because, folks, marriage is a gift. God gave us marriage in the very opening pages of the Bible, a good thing to meet a need, to do a work in our lives. God uses marriage to teach us, to mold us, to to shape us into the people that he wants us to be. He uses some of the not-so-wonderful days of marriage. He uses some of those not-so-wonderful aspects or character qualities of your mate to do that. Of course, he's using some of your not-so-wonderful character qualities also. God uses all these things to grow us as individuals and to, and to grow this marriage. What I'd like to do today is I'd like to hear God on marriage I'd like to read a series of passages, five passages to be exact, and and just listen to God talk about marriage. This is in no way all that God has to say about marriage, but I think it's enough that we should go, wow, hey, God has spoken to this. 
God does have ideas on this. God has made it clear. And I, and I want us to hear today God on marriage. I'm going to start. You might want to turn in your Bible with me to Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. We're going to start in Genesis 2. Now, after I read that, I'm going to fly to the second one. I don't know if you're going to want to try to keep up, you know, getting to all the passages that I'm going to. I'd rather you be listening than turning pages. But uh, I want to read these kind of consecutively, back to back to back to back, and just hear God speak to us. So let me begin in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And remember, folks, what as we read this, you know what we're seeing? God do? We're seeing him do one of the very first things once everything's here. Now you got to get everything here first, right? But once everything is here, creation that is, then marriage is one of the first things he does. Look at this, Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Your translation might say suitable for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought to them and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever he called them, every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of the ribs, one of his ribs, and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed." And then Proverbs chapter, Proverbs chapter 5, beginning in verse 15. It starts off by saying, drink water from your own cistern. Now, I think you're going to figure this out as I'm reading this passage, but just let me take it, make it clear. He ain't talking about drinking water from a cistern. Okay? See if you can figure this out. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets... Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the girlfriend at that time. No, it doesn't say that, does it? No, it says rejoice in the person that's important to you at this stage in your life. No, it says rejoice in your wife. Rejoice in your husband. Rejoice in that mate of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. God sees all this. He sees what's going on and he ponders all our paths. And then Matthew chapter 19, this is Jesus speaking. A group of people have come to him asking about divorce and in answering that question, he makes this statement about marriage in verse 4. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. 
And then Ephesians chapter 5. This is a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And Ephesians chapter 5 gives us one of the longest sets of instructions in the Bible on marriage. How to be a husband. How to be a wife. It starts in chapter 5 verse 22 uh, and, and goes through verse 33. I'm going to pick up today in verse 31. It says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Is that starting to sound familiar? It should. It's the third time I've read it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And then one last passage, and it's just one verse, but folks, hold on. This one packs a wallop. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. And let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. From these five passages, folks, I would like to make nine observations. I know that sounds like a lot. A couple of these I'm going to camp out on, but most of them we're going to sail through pretty quickly. But I'm trying to make nine, and, and this is the operative word, observations. You ever heard somebody say, well, that's your interpretation. I'm trying today not to do a lot of interpretation. I'm just trying to let the scriptures speak and see, is that what God has just flat out said? It's pretty simple. It's pretty straightforward. It doesn't take a lot of interpretation. And let's see what we should at least, I'm not saying these are the only nine things, what we should at least leave with from hearing God on marriage. First thing I think we should leave with is that marriage meets a need. Right there from the very beginning, we see that God, this was not man's idea, was it? It was God who came up with marriage. It's God that invented, created, designed, put the recipe together for marriage. And he did so to meet a need. I always thought that was an interesting passage because when you think about where Adam is, he lives in a perfect world, right? Lives in a perfect world, lives in a perfect relationship with God. And yet it is God that says, whoa, time out. Something's missing. It's God that sees that. It's God that acknowledges that. And then it's God that moves to meet the need. Please note how God meets the need. He makes somebody different from Adam. He didn't move to meet the need by creating somebody just like Adam. He made somebody different. A compliment to Adam. A fit for Adam. But somebody different from Adam. And so now in the recognizing the need and moving to meet the need in creation, God has created somebody distinctly male and distinctly female. And now that he's got this male and he's got this female, the next words out of his mouth are about marriage. Hey, let's create, let's invent marriage. That's just observing what the text shows us. And in that marriage, God creates something that is very unique, very special, a, a relationship that is not like other relationships that we have. Important relationships, loving relationships, but not like all the other relationships. Second observation that we make is that marriage and our mate... Maybe I should not have put that in parentheses. Maybe I should have just made that like big, bold red letters... Marriage and our mate are a, can we say this together? 
gift. They're a gift from God. You know, you see it in the English. I think it leaps off the page a little bit more in the Hebrew, but in the way that language is written, when God brings Eve to Adam, he's pretty stoked about this whole idea. He's thinking this is pretty darn cool. Now, some have suggested because she's standing there naked, right? There's a lot to get excited about. But I think there's more going on there than just that. You stop and think about it. God's talking about something that's going to go on for life, and yet he doesn't even know Eve. They've never been on a date. She hasn't filled out an online profile. Why, they don't even know if they're sexually compatible. And yet, he seems to be pretty excited about this whole idea of Eve, this whole idea of marriage. Could I suggest there's a reason why he's so excited? While he knows nothing about marriage and he knows nothing about Eve, he knows a lot about God. And God's good. And if this good God is bringing me marriage, and if he is bringing me Eve, then they are good. You know, marriage has some hard days, doesn't it? The answer is yes. I wonder if we could avoid some of those hard days. I wonder if we could get through some of those hard days a little bit easier if we changed our attitude. And we began to look at our mate, we began to look at marriage as a gift into my life. I did not say your mate always acts like a gift from God, okay? I mean, that's, that's just reality. But we're not talking about what our mate is acting like, what our mate is doing or not doing. We're not talking about what the marriage is doing for me or not doing for me. We're talking about our attitude, which has such a profound impact on our mate and our marriage. What if I began to look at them as a gift from God? Third observation I believe we can make from these passages, folks, is that the goal of marriage, one of them, is to become one. And that is achieved through commitment and physical union. The goal is to become one. You know, I said a moment ago that this, this relationship, it's not like others. As a matter of fact, the Old Testament uses this concept of oneness one other way. In Deuteronomy 6.4, it uses it to refer to the Holy Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Clearly pointing that marriage is not like any other relationship. You know, folks, we, we are confused. We've made it very complicated in our world today because we're basically trying to, to baptize any important relationship, any loving relationship with the word marriage. And it's not supposed to be just something that hops from relationship to relationship. There's one relationship. It is so unique. It is so profound that God compares it to the Trinity. And the way that oneness is going to be experienced. You know, I, I have proceeded over, I, over 130 weddings. I don't remember the exact number. 130 times I've said, you're now husband and wife, you're now one. That's the easy part. And then they walk back down that aisle to begin a lifetime of trying to become one. How do we become one? How do we find in this relationship what we want? The scripture says it starts with a commitment. You leave existing dependencies. You leave existing relationships. You make this commitment to come together. Now, people can say, well, I left home. You know, I grew up. I left home. We've moved in together. We don't need a ceremony. We don't need a, we don't need a piece of paper to, be in, to tell us that we're in love with each other. You know, what's interesting in the, in the Bible about this concept of commitment is the word used for marriage is covenant. It's much more than a piece of paper. 
It's much more than a contract. Contracts are written to make it difficult for you to get out of something. Covenants are written to make it near impossible for you to get out of something. In other words, the piece of paper makes all the difference in the world. God would say the piece of paper is not enough. Folks, it is, it is that young man and that young woman grabbing each other's hand and they go back down the aisle. And really, at that point, it's just a couple of fools, isn't it? Love has just made them incredibly foolish. And they think that nothing is out there except happiness and fun and happily ever after. Oh, sometimes it doesn't even take a week. We go back down that aisle to, yeah, there's good out there, isn't there? But there's some bad. And there's some ugly. You know where intimacy is found? In the no escape clause. It's in the no escape clause that as we go back down through the aisle and on into life and that we walk through the good and the bad and the ugly and we do it holding hands. You know, I'm, I'm reaching a stage in my marriage. I'm reaching a stage in my life where I'm really starting to think, you know, that really is the big prize. That, that really ultimately is what it's all about to be able to get to the other side of that thing and still be holding hands. You know, that, that side is getting closer and closer for Karen and I. And you know what, folks, as I see us arriving at that day, we're not going to arrive there because we always liked each other. Because we didn't. We didn't. There's plenty of days we look at each other and say, I don't like you. Now, most of the time, we're smart enough to not say it out, out loud. <laughs> I said most of the time. Not all of the time. Sometimes we actually reach that moment of brilliance where we tell the other person what we're thinking at that moment. You know, we're not going to arrive there because we've always agreed. No, we disagree. And it's not on where we're going to the movies or what we're eating for dinner tonight. We disagree on some things that we, I mean, we have profound reasons for why we want to do it this way or we ought to go this direction. And Karen and I have not found that fine art of disagreeing quietly. I mean, laying down for the sake of peace, are you kidding me? Winning's much more important. <laughs> no, we've not always liked each other. We've not always agreed. But you know what? It's that darn no escape clause that makes me grab her hand and keep on going until we figure it out. And that's where the intimacy springs. Folks, it is a, into a covenant a commitment seen by all that we come into. A covenant that means we can't get out of this. It's time to hold hands and work it out and figure it out. Notice the order. We leave, then we cleave. We covenant and then we celebrate. And folks, that's what the sexual relationship is. The sexual relationships celebrates the covenant. It renews the covenant. It refreshes the covenant. It strengthens the covenant. But the sexual relationship is in relationship with the covenant. Inside the covenant, it is profoundly meaningful and beautiful and wonderful. Outside the covenant, it is profoundly dangerous. That's not just the rantings of a preacher or we preach abstinence, so that's what we've got to say Folks, there's a host of doctors, a host of psychologists, and a host of books that are proving in America and around the world every single day how profoundly dangerous sex is outside of the covenant relationship. It's destroying us. 
It has such a profound impact that some of us, when we do move into marriage, it brings an enormous problem with it. Inside the covenant, beautiful. Outside, dangerous. The next observation kind of follows right out of that. God says that, that notice the word beauty of sex is for one man and one woman in marriage. I read the Proverbs 5 passage for, for two reasons. One, I just love that illustration. We've, we've, we've got all this sexual energy, all this sexual vitality, all this sexual desire. And Proverbs says, man, you got to get control of that. You can't just let that pour out into the streets. You, you just can't let that run anywhere and everywhere and be with and for anyone and everyone. It's for one, a mate. Profoundly saying sex for one man, one woman in marriage. But the other reason I read that passage is for that word beauty right there. Didn't that make that sound cool? Man, be satisfied with her breasts. Be intoxicated. You know why I read that, folks? Because I think the world has the idea that God, the church, the Bible, we have nothing to say about sex except don't. It's bad. I mean, isn't that, kind of the, isn't that kind of the message they think we carry on that? No, folks, the Bible carries a beautiful message about the sexual relationship in marriage. Yes, it has a lot of negative things to say about it outside of marriage. But boy, it talks about it profoundly and passionately and beautifully in marriage. You want to check out some rated R reading this afternoon? Try the Song of Solomon. And as you're reading through that, and you think, is it talking about? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what it's talking about. Next observation, number five here. Jesus and Paul both affirm the Genesis account of marriage. Remember, when I was reading that, I said, Jesus is answering a question about divorce. Paul is giving instructions on how to be a man or how to be a husband, how to be a wife. So under the big topic of marriage, they're both talking about something differently. And yet both of them anchor their teaching Back in Genesis chapter 2. The authority of what they're saying goes back to Genesis chapter 2. Now here's the observation I want to make on that. Jesus and Paul, of course, both writing, both speaking during the first century A.D. Genesis chapter 2, written by Moses in around 1200, give or take, B.C. So in other words, as Jesus and Paul are teaching and they go back to Genesis 2, they're going back to something that was written 12, 1300 years ago. And I think the observation to be made there, folks, is it appears that God's idea on marriage, God's definition on marriage, God's recipe on marriage transcends time. It transcends culture. It doesn't move. It doesn't adjust. It doesn't change with the times and with cultures. But as they're teaching about it a millennia later, isn't a millennia a lot? Yes, is the answer. That's a thousand years. Uh, they're still anchoring it back to the very first thing that God said. I believe that's extremely important for us to see and to acknowledge. The sixth observation, God intends for a couple that gets married to stay married. We see that in Jesus' statement, let nobody, let nobody separate what who joined together? God. Gosh, that kind of goes back to the second observation I made that marriage is a gift from God. Yeah, it's God that does that. It's not the state of Virginia that gives us a piece of paper that makes that a marriage. It's not the pastor doing... No, that's a gift from God. God did that. And when God does that, we're not to pull it apart. Now, next week, we're going to look at a couple of reasons. And by couple, I actually mean 
Two. There's two biblical reasons that a divorce can take place. That a divorce is allowed, never commanded. It's never commanded. It is allowed in two places. But folks, as we come into this, remember our focus is on the no escape clause. Not what if, what about when, what if they... We've got to come in this with the operating principle, the operating rule. This is to stay. We stay in here for life. Number seven, love and respect are instructions in marriage. Now, my point in saying that this morning is not to talk about how a man loves a wife or or how a woman or wife respects her husband. It's just to point out, folks, there's instructions Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 3, Proverbs, on and on and on. There are instructions on what a husband looks like, what a wife looks like, what a marriage is, what a marriage is to do. Communication, conflict resolution, parenting. We had all these parents up here. What a beautiful picture. You know, I I thought sometimes, you know, it'd be more personal if it was one couple at a time, wouldn't it? I actually don't think that's the best picture, though. You know, all these kids up here, they're all going to grow up together, aren't they? And our prayer is they grow up in the Lord together. All these parents, they're going to parent together. Their kids are going to be coming through at the same time. It's not something we do alone. We need each other. It's a picture of the church. And there's instructions for all that. Folks, if we don't follow the instructions, guess what happened? Things break. Always. Things break. Every single problem you've ever had in your marriage, big or small, has been because one or both of you stepped outside the instructions. Some of us are experiencing problems in marriage today because we stepped outside the instructions before we got married. It's a big deal. Instructions make it work. Outside the instructions makes it break. You know, I got this owner's manual in my car and it Very simple instruction. You don't have to interpret it. It says, don't drive the car with a flat tire. Now, my daughter Amy felt like she had a reason to ignore the instructions. I'm only three or four miles from the house. What problem will it cause to drive all the way home with a flat tire? So she ignored the instructions, and she had her brothers with her. Colin was hanging out the the window on the driver's side looking at it, and at one point he did give some great technical insight. There's no rubber left. There's sparks shooting out everywhere. It's really loud. Okay, so that's the help he's giving. Then there's Randy, who's the baby of the family. You know what the baby of the family's doing, right? He's just in the back seat laughing his head off. No, no skin off of him, man. This is just, that's all fun. It's, everything's a party. Okay, so she keeps driving home on this flat tire. Now, not only destroying, destroying the tire, but now she's starting to destroy everything that goes with the front end of the car. And about this time, about a mile from the house, it was so loud that Karen said, what's that noise? And went outside to discover that it was our car with our kids in it. And then she, you know what, we're going to leave out what she did next. That's not really relevant. It's not really relevant to the message today. But you know what, when you step outside the instructions, things break. I'm confident, by the way, you know, of course they did that when I'm out of town. You know, I'm confident they get together and say, how can we drive mom nuts? Because when she goes nuts, she takes dad down with her and we get everything then. (laughs) Confident that's what's going on because they only do that foolishness when I'm out of town. (laughs) So now I tell them I leave town, if my mom calls me, I'll kill you. (laughs) And you'll get nothing. She may take me down with her, but you'll already be gone. (laughs) Okay. 
Yeah, we follow the instructions. You know what? I've owned cars for over 30 years. Did you know that never once in my life have I had fun buying tires? I don't, I don't think that's fun at all. But it's how the car works, right? You know what, folks, I'm going to tell you right now, you open up God's Word and you see some of the instructions on how to handle that issue and how to deal with that problem. I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to look at some of those instructions and they're not fun. As a matter of fact, you're going to look at some of them and say, no way. They don't deserve it. Well, if I do that, they're not going to respond. Right? If I do that, they're not going to... The instructions aren't written because they're fun. The instructions are written because it's how the thing works. The designer gives us the instructions. How to use them. Folks, let's be honest. We've become experts at coming to church Sunday in and Sunday out, looking at the instructions and going home and changing very, very little. And that's important that we get the instructions right because of the eighth observation. Folks, we have to honor marriage. It has to be honored by all. You know, a lot of our young people today are struggling. They come in here, they hear what we believe, and, and they go back out there, and, and, and people are pounding. What's wrong with y'all? I mean, you, you, you're against two people being in love? What's wrong with two people being in love and, and wanting to get married? It does. It sounds like we're against people being in love, right? But folks, I have a command. It's not a desire to be in other people's business. I have a command to honor marriage. And that means to honor the marriage that God painted, to honor the marriage that God showed, to honor the marriage that God held up for 1,400 years in scriptures, which is one man and one woman for life. That's what he shows me. And then he says, Randy, honor that. Honor it in the way you talk about it. Honor it in the way you protect and care for your own. Honor it in the, in the, in the way you start dating. Because folks, honoring marriage begins way before I do. Honoring marriage begins when you're sitting in biology in 10th grade and you look across the room at that little cutie on the other side. I got to give her a call. And you're thinking about biology, but not the one the professor's teaching about up front. Did you know the moment you say hello, you begin honoring marriage? You're honoring marriage in the way you talk to them. You're honoring marriage in the way you pursue purity. You know what? You're honoring marriage when you recognize that until you put a ring on her finger or she accepts that ring from you, that there's a real high probability that they'll marry somebody else. So while you might be enjoying their company for three months, three years, you're dating somebody else's mate. You honor that person's marriage in the way that you do that. This is a command on our lives, folks. I don't have a choice. I have to do this. And boy, we see a problem when we don't. Look at what, how, how 13.4 ended in our ninth observation. God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterer. You know, folks, a real simple way to explain that is God's given us a recipe for marriage. When you and I change the recipe, we change the order of when the sex and the covenant happen. We introduce a lot of pieces to the recipe. Different pieces to the recipe. Recipe. God says, hey, you know what? There's a judgment for that. This marriage thing, this is a big deal to God. Are y'all, are y'all feeling that? Are y'all, this is a big deal to God. And you know what? We don't like that word. Matter of fact, that's, that word right there, that's, that's the reason we don't come back to church, isn't it? Oh, you know, you beat up people mean, you say, ah, 
God will judge. But that's the truth, isn't it? It's, it's, just, it's just the truth. And, and the adulterer here, this word right here, is just really a reference to one thing. And that is somebody who has sex with somebody else when they're married to somebody else. That's an adulterer. The sexually immoral, now this is a, an interesting word. The Greek word here is the word pornea, which we get our English word what? Pornography from that. But this word, while the adulterer is a reference to one kind of sexual situation, sexually immoral is like a huge big umbrella word. It includes everything. Not, not just sexual intercourse outside of marriage. It includes everything. It, as a matter of fact, the definition of the word would be any kind of illicit sexual behavior outside of one man and one woman in marriage. In other words, if Bill Clinton would have just opened his Bible when he was trying to figure out the definition of the word is, he would have been able to realize, absolutely, Bill Clinton, you are sexually immoral adulterer. And you have profoundly brought judgment into your own life. And I believe as the leader of this country, you've brought judgment into our nation as you profoundly led us to, to take a big step in even more sexual promiscuity than ever before. Folks, this word includes everything that is sexually driven outside of one man and one woman in marriage. Man, this is heavy stuff. But God spoke it for a reason, didn't he? Folks, in over 1,400 years of, of what is included from Genesis to Revelation, God holds up one kind of relationship, one man, one woman for life. And has some wonderful, positive things to say about what that is and what it does and what goes on inside that. It has a lot negative to say about any other recipe, any other design outside of that. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, it, it, the Bible doesn't speak to a lot. Maybe some of those other things are okay. The Bible just doesn't speak to them. It just speaks to, to one kind. No, folks, the Bible speaks about every kind of sexual activity under the sun. Every kind. It leaves absolutely nothing out. Homosexuality, sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, sex after marriage, voyeurism, pornography, polygamy, incest, bestiality. The Bible speaks to every kind of sexual behavior there is. It leaves none of it out. And it says it in a very negative way that it talks about these things. Now, I've heard people say, maybe you have too. Well, the Bible was just writing to the social norms of that day. You know, it's just writing what everybody believed in that culture and time. That is an incredibly ignorant statement. It's ignorant of Scripture. It's ignorant of history. It's ignorant of Scripture because, as I've said about six times today, the Bible covers 1,400 years. So when you say it was writing to that day, which day are you talking about? It's over 1,400 years of culture and time. And, and, and when we say, well, it's just writing to what everybody believed that day, you're showing your ignorance of history. Because guess what, folks? The reason the Bible talks about all those things is because they were all going on. The, the biblical idea of sexuality has always been a minority view. It has always been a confrontational view. The New Testament... The entire New Testament was written during the reign of the Roman Empire, which profoundly promoted homosexuality and pedophilia. The Bible wasn't writing to what everybody was doing and accepted that day. 
No, you know what the Bible is giving us, folks? It's not giving us what men thought during this year or in that culture. The Bible is telling us what God thinks about marriage. The Bible is giving us a clear picture of God's idea on marriage and in that, our command to honor it. And we honor it in the way we vote. We honor it in the way we talk about marriage, the way we talk about our mate. We honor it in how we live as a, a person who is not married. We honor it in how we protect and nourish and cherish our own marriage. Folks, do you see that you and I have a command of God on our lives to think what He thinks about marriage? And that is to hold it in significance, to hold it in holiness. Heavy stuff. It's especially heavy since every person in this room, certainly above the age of about 12, every person in this room, starting with up here, has dishonored marriage. You have disobeyed. We have disobeyed this command. We've been negligent with this command. Sometimes we've out and out rebelled against this command. Maybe it's been this week. Maybe it hadn't been for years. Maybe it was just a few times. Maybe it was a lot of times. But folks, if we can't even come in here and honor marriage, how in the world are we going to go out there and help our culture honor it? You know, like I said, this, these kinds of things, this is why we, don't, why we don't go. I just feel guilt and judgment and shame when I'm in there. Now, some of that guilt, judgment, and shame we probably should feel. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the woman caught in adultery. Do you remember what Jesus said to her? I won't condemn you. But he also said this. Don't ever go back to that. Folks, if you're here today, there is hope, there is healing, and there is forgiveness for you. If the way you have dishonored marriage was 20 years ago, or it was this week... If you've dishonored marriage, there is hope, there is healing, there is forgiveness. There is the opportunity to not know that judgment that Hebrew 13, 4 talks about. But you have to hear Jesus say, don't return to that again. Don't go back to dishonoring marriage. It has to change. You have to live in light of my father's ideas on this, my father's instructions on this. Folks, we can't do that without a relationship with Jesus Christ.